Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Here are today's top stories. The House is set to vote on a GOP debt ceiling bill today. The spending plan adds debt to cover U.S. spending. However, it adds less than Democrats want and more than some Republicans would like. With President Joe Biden declaring his candidacy for the 2024 election, will there be a rematch of the 2020 Biden versus Trump election? We take a look at what to expect. Chicago prosecutor Kim Fox says she's hanging up her gloves and won't seek re-election next year. Fox has been frequently called too soft on crime and criticized for connections to billionaire George Soros. What's going on now in East Palestine, Ohio? We'll check in with locals who are still living in limbo after the train derailment and toxic chemical burn. The House possibly voting on a Republican-sponsored debt ceiling bill today. The bill would add less debt than planned by the Biden administration. However, in order to do so, Congress would strip funding from Democrats' key priorities. America has reached its debt cap. A GOP-sponsored bill would raise the nation's $31 trillion cap by $1.5 trillion, less than what Democrats want. However, almost all Republicans have to get behind the bill in order for it to pass the House. The party can only afford to lose four votes in total, and some already said on Tuesday that they're not planning on voting for the bill. Yeah, I'm a hard no. I, I just can't get past $32 trillion in debt. Uh, people in Tennessee work too hard. And, um, and they manage their money, and we just do a terrible job of it here. I, mean, I am still a no on the debt ceiling. Do the math, do the numbers, and, and come out with something stronger. Because if this is something that the president is just going to end up vetoing and it's a messaging bill, then we ought to have the best message, most responsible, fiscally responsible message moving forward. Still, still, saw your tweet earlier. Still, still, still leaning no. And even if the bill passes, President Biden already said he'd veto it. That's because it strips funding away from Democrats' priorities, like Biden's student loan forgiveness program, rescinding new funds given to the IRS, and unspent COVID money, and it caps the overall budget. While Biden says he won't agree to any spending cuts, some Republicans are on the exact opposite side, saying they won't agree to any spending. Well, I think you've seen a little more than a dozen of us never vote for an increase in the debt limit. And so to do so, there has to be substantial downward pressure on spending. We're deeply concerned about a $32 trillion debt, what that means in terms of the dollar's position as the global reserve currency, and the extent to which government spending is driving the very inflation that we were elected to check. So we think Joe Biden should negotiate. Meanwhile, President Biden this week indicated Republicans are politicizing the debt ceiling. They're like, they got to be quoting Donald Trump, but even Donald Trump said, I can't imagine anyone ever thinking of using the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge. The White House said in a statement, House Republicans must address the debt limit without demands and conditions. It might as well be called the Default on America Act because that's exactly what it is. The House might vote on the bill on Wednesday. If passed, it would head to the Senate next. And just this morning, Republicans' spending plan was approved by the House Rules Committee along party lines. Republicans rejected all amendments offered by Democrats. This now clears the way for a rapid up or down vote by the full House. President Joe Biden officially kicked off his re-election campaign yesterday. That sets up a potential rematch between Biden and former President Donald Trump. NTD's Daniel Monahan brings us a closer look at what to expect. With the country increasingly back to normal, analysts at the Associated Press say Biden won't be able to hold on to the White House by running in the same way he did three years ago. Lockdowns made the 2020 campaign far less grueling. Biden hosted virtual events from a basement in his Delaware home and could avoid travel for months at a stretch. So much so that former President Donald Trump frequently accused the now 80-year-old Biden of ignoring voters. Avoiding crowds often made it harder for Biden to ignite supporter enthusiasm. But he also averted the kind of spontaneous interactions that led to memorable gaps in the past. Rice University professor Mark Jones discusses the 2024 campaign. The difference this time around would be that the burden would be on Biden to defend his record the same way the burden was on Trump to defend his record in 2020. But Jones says there's a flip side to that. 
The advantage, of course, that Biden has is that while he can't campaign against Trump now, he can campaign against Trump's previous presidency. Analysts say Biden is vulnerable on issues such as high inflation and his age. While Brown professor Wendy Schiller says Biden needs to look tougher on crime. I think that the Republicans have been successful with a crime message. That's a message the Trump campaign is already hammering away at. Our cities have been overrun with homelessness, drug addicts, and violent criminals. Meanwhile, Biden brought up culture war issues like abortion access and so-called book banning in his announcement video. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. At 76 years old, Trump doesn't fare much better than Biden on the age issue. Another vulnerability for Trump are legal problems such as the New York indictment and possible other charges on election interference in Georgia. Former Arkansas governor and presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson believes people are looking for new leadership. No one wants a Biden-Trump replay of 2020. Uh, it was painful then, it would be painful again. And Hutchinson may be right, at least according to some polls. An NBC News survey released Sunday showed that 70% of respondents said Biden shouldn't run, while 60% felt the same about Trump. Meanwhile, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is running a strong second among possible Republican candidates. So all the Trump-Biden talk could be premature anyway. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Former President Trump says no one asked him or his campaign about presidential primary debates and that he likely won't attend the two currently scheduled. In a Truth Social post, Trump said he isn't confident he would be treated fairly at the debates. He described debate moderators as angry, Trump-maga-hating anchors. During Trump's 2020 re-election campaign, the Republican National Committee didn't schedule any primary debates since the GOP was solidly behind Trump. This year, a Republican National Committee source says the debate organizer has been communicating with all candidates and campaigns, including Trump and his team. The debate criteria are still up in the air while they negotiate with campaigns. President Biden has selected senior White House advisor Julie Chavez Rodriguez to be his 2024 campaign manager. She's the granddaughter of Cesar Chavez, who's well known by Mexican-Americans for organizing a farm workers labor union. This move shows the Biden campaign is hoping for a genuine connection with Hispanic voters. Joining us now to discuss is Javier Palomares, founder and CEO of the U.S. Hispanic Business Council. Javier Palomares, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So President Biden has chosen to make Julie Chavez Rodriguez his campaign manager. What do you think this signals about his 2024 campaign? Well, I mean, I think it, 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 it signals that, that President Biden, as well as the entire campaign, recognizes the importance of the Hispanic electorate. Uh, you know, as we turn our attention to, to, to the coming presidential campaign, uh, you know, already uh, Hispanics make up the majority of the population in states like California, New Mexico, Arizona, and, and, and Texas. And so uh, I think he is uh, he's dead on in, in electing somebody like Julie um, right now. There are more Hispanics in this country than there are African Americans and Asians combined. And every 30 seconds, a Hispanic turns 18 and becomes an eligible voter in this nation. So uh, I think it's, uh, it's a, a smart choice. Got it. Got it. So what issues are Hispanic small businesses and um, Hispanic voters in general most concerned about this election cycle? Well, you know, one of the reasons that I'm very encouraged uh, that President Biden has elected uh, Julie Chavez Rodriguez is that Julie understands the real issues that the Hispanic community is concerned about. Um, you know, I, I've spoken to her many times about the importance of the uh, Hispanic uh, business community, uh, how much we uh, contribute to this nation, as you know, $800 billion a year. Uh, but above and beyond that, Julie understands the Hispanic electorate. She brings, obviously, uh, a, a lot of experience to the role. She served two terms under President Obama. Uh, she served uh, in the campaign for Vice President Harris. But she brings with her uh, insights and knowledge uh, born out of a lifetime of understanding the Hispanic community. She understands that while immigration may matter to us, it is certainly not the top issue. Uh, the economy, jobs, inflation, interest rates, health care, uh, national security, all of those issues are important to the Hispanic community. 
We're no different in that regard, Chris, from the average American family. The the breakfast table issues are the things that matter to us. The kitchen, uh, you know, conversations that every American is having, those are the same conversations Hispanics are having right now. So Hispanic voters are becoming an increasingly crucial to the outcome of elections. Do you think politicians are picking up on this and in turn um, paying more attention to these issues? They certainly are. Uh, you know, I know that President Biden uh, has sought the advice and counsel of many Hispanics, not just myself. Uh, I, I know that, that, that he has uh, an understanding of the American Hispanic business community. Uh, I know for a fact that Julie certainly understands our community. She's, you know, she's on speed dial with all of us. Uh, we all call upon her. So I think that there, here is a very unique opportunity uh, to, to, to illustrate that he understands our community to allow Julie to inform the strategy for how to engage not only all Americans, but Hispanic Americans uh, as well. And so uh, I think that this will ensure that we're not left out of the national dialogue and that we're allowed an opportunity to truly reach out to his campaign and inform his strategy for moving forward. Um, I know as well that, uh, you know, there are other potential candidates out there, particularly one in Florida that is very attuned to the Hispanic community, is very aware of what our needs are, and when and if he announces, uh, he will do so with a treasure trove of information and background and knowledge about our, our community. Uh, so I know that uh, DeSantis, when and if he announces, is also very attuned to the Hispanic community. Javier Palomares, founder and CEO of the U.S. Hispanic Business Council, thank you for your time. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you having me. Have a good day. A Florida law change could pave the way for Governor Ron DeSantis to announce his presidential run, and he wouldn't have to resign as governor. DeSantis is widely expected to run for president despite the lack of an official announcement. The state's current resign-to-run law requires any public official seeking federal office to resign from their current state position. The proposed amendment would allow DeSantis to run for president without resigning his top position in Florida. However, if he did become president, he would have to give up his last two years as governor. In March, a political action committee aligned with Trump accused DeSantis of running an illegal shadow campaign for president, accusing him of ignoring the resign-to-run law. Chicago prosecutor Kim Fox won't seek re-election next year. Fox received millions in financial support from George Soros and has frequently been called too lenient by critics. The prosecutor received heavy criticism after dropping charges against actor Jussie Smollett. Smollett allegedly pulled a hate crime hoax. The actor claimed two white people attacked him in the streets of Chicago. It later came out that Smollett had hired two Nigerian bodybuilders to carry out the plan. Fox entered office seven years ago. Soros provided her campaign with over $400,000. Later in 2020, Soros gave $2 million to a committee backing her re-election. new findings on what appeared to be misinformation from the CDC. The agency made multiple false statements this month about possible side effects of the COVID-19 vaccine. A senior CDC official said the agency never detected a safety signal for a certain type of stroke with the old COVID-19 vaccines. But according to documents obtained by the Epoch Times, the CDC found the signal as early as in May 2022. Another CDC spokesperson said they didn't receive data proving a link between tinnitus and vaccines, but the National Vaccine Information Center said more than 24,000 tinnitus reports were submitted to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. The CDC already identified tinnitus as a safety signal after analyzing data from that system. Colorado has passed a bill to make the state a so-called gender surgery sanctuary, it seems even for minors. The new law includes legal shields for patients and providers of cross-sex procedures. The new law doesn't note any restrictions on procedures for minors, and in fact bans charges against Colorado providers for performing child cross-sex procedures. It offers extensive protections to doctors, including protection from trials, search warrants, and legal punishments. It also says doctors performing child cross-sex procedures or abortions can't have their medical malpractice insurance canceled. 
If a child seeking sex change procedures travels to Colorado from a state where gender surgery for minors is illegal, the state won't extradite doctors. States with similar laws include Washington, Massachusetts, California, Illinois, and New Mexico. Let's check in on East Palestine, Ohio. Toxic train derailment cost Norfolk Southern nearly $400 million. Part of that is loss of profits. The disaster also added the extra cost of evacuations and massive cleanup efforts. Norfolk Southern has also committed nearly $31 million in compensation and support to the East Palestine community. But concerned citizens say that's not enough. Locals say they're still living in limbo more than two and a half months after the train derailment. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest. Jeff Drummond spends days and nights alone in a cramped room with two small beds. A microwave sits on top of a mini fridge that serves as a nightstand. I can't do my own cooking. I have to go out and do my own laundry. I have a washer and dryer at home that I can't use. You know, it, it, I have nothing here basically, I just a room. Drummond's pickup truck is parked just outside the door at this roadside motel. He's been here since early February. Right now, I'm just, I, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's getting to that point that I just don't know what to think anymore, what to hope for, you know, whether I should try to find someplace else to live. And... After a Norfolk Southern train derailed, toxic vinyl chloride was leaking from five cars. Officials burned it to prevent a catastrophic explosion. About half of the town's 5,000 residents evacuated. I just keep thinking, well, where am I going to be? Is anybody even going to still be trying to help us? What's the next step? Most residents have returned. Some are staying away until they're sure it's safe. Others aren't allowed back home because of the ongoing cleanup. 81-year-old Norma Carr raised four children in this 1930s duplex. She moved in 57 years ago. She knew everyone in her neighborhood, walked to church, and always felt safe. We'll go back if we can, absolutely. And if we can't, I can accept that too, because I'm like Chrissy, I pray all the time, and I tell God, you know, whatever you have for me, I can do for you. For now, she's staying in a condo 10 miles away. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A Los Angeles elected official blames Toyota, not thieves, for rising thefts of catalytic converters. She says Toyota has made the car part too tempting for thieves to resist. The Los Angeles City Council made a law intended to deter thieves from robbing the highly stolen car part. Afterwards, Councilwoman Nithya Raman said during a town hall that Toyota is largely responsible for the thefts. Toyota's Priuses are the most common vehicles targeted by thieves in the area. She says that Toyota has the responsibility to make the part harder to steal to save costs to consumers. Toyota responded that minimizing theft requires close collaboration between the broader automotive industry and local and state authorities to eliminate the market for stolen parts. A councilman says Los Angeles experienced an over 700% surge in the theft of catalytic converter components, and a state farm study shows California has the highest incidence of catalytic converter thefts in the country. A New Jersey police officer is recovering after a driver hit him and ran from the scene. We want to warn you, some of the video you are about to see is disturbing. This happened last Saturday night on a highway in Robbinsville Township in the west central part of the state. Patrolman Connor Boyle was helping the driver of a broken down vehicle. As Boyle is standing on the side of the road talking with the driver, a car hits him, his patrol car, and the disabled vehicle. Police say the driver took off. Paramedics quickly arrived and took Boyle to a hospital. He's now in stable condition. Police arrested a suspect at her home in East Windsor, New Jersey. She's facing numerous charges, including second-degree assault of a police officer. The police chief in Robbinsville says this incident should remind drivers that if they see a stopped officer in the roadway, they are required by law to move over a lane. The U.S. Coast Guard rescues two boaters who were on a life raft near Cape San Blas, Florida. 
The search began on Monday after officials got a phone call from a person on a shrimp trawler that was disabled. According to the Coast Guard, the vessel had lost power and was taking on water. A rescue aircraft located the boaters Tuesday. They are reported to be in stable condition. Florida is preparing to pass a sweeping immigration bill backed by Governor Ron DeSantis. It would give millions of dollars to his controversial program for transporting illegal immigrants to Democratic areas. NTD's Daniel Monahan brings us more. SB 1617 was filed on Sunday night following weeks of negotiations between House and Senate Republicans. It is expected to pass the Republican-controlled legislature this week. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis introduced the legislation in February. We're fighting back on behalf of Floridians. If passed, it would give $12 million to the DeSantis Illegal Immigrant Flight Program. The program made headlines in September after the administration paid to fly 50 illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. The bill would also bar local governments in Florida from funding ID cards for people with no proof of citizenship, invalidate a driver's license issued by another state to someone who cannot prove their citizenship, require hospitals that accept Medicaid to record a patient's citizenship status on intake forms, prohibit undocumented law school graduates from taking the Florida bar. They're letting illegal aliens become licensed attorneys in Florida. It's like, how could you be violating the law and then be practicing the law? The bill would also increase penalties for human trafficking-related offenses to a second-degree felony and require anyone in custody of law enforcement with an immigration retainer to submit a DNA sample. Supporters say dealing with the issue of illegal immigration is critical. They believe such measures will improve safety in Florida and strengthen the economy. Opponents say the bill is inhumane and unconstitutional and will waste taxpayer money. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. When we come back, a French company with close ties to Beijing snapping up control of port terminals across the U.S. What's at stake? An analyst shares his thoughts. Welcome back. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol says his country's alliance with the U.S. must leap into a new phase. He says this includes jointly overcoming complex crises. Yoon spoke at an event hosted by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce yesterday. He said new challenges and the economic slowdown was unsettling the investment environment. He added the two nations were the ideal partners for friendshoring a reference to a U.S.-led process of reducing dependence on China for key goods and materials. Despite making no mention of China by name, South Korea so far has secured nearly $6 billion in investment by U.S. firms. Yun further added that core technologies from both countries' manufacturing capabilities would create enormous synergies that will benefit the two countries. He said he hopes the countries will reaffirm their status as true allies and technology partners to create new business opportunities. Yoon is accompanied by more than 100 executives from South Korea's biggest companies, including Samsung and Hyundai Motor Group. Staying with South Korea for the first time in over four decades, the U.S. is sending nuclear-armed subs to dock in the country. The move is part of the Washington Declaration. The agreement is set to be signed today as President Biden hosts his South Korean counterpart for a state visit. It aims to boost military cooperation to deter North Korea's nuclear expansion and to counter China's growing military presence in the region. The U.S. pulled all nuclear weapons from the Korean Peninsula after the Cold War. The White House has said it has no plans to return these arms, but promised the Pentagon would deploy bombers or aircraft carriers to Seoul more frequently. A French company with close ties to Beijing, snapping up control of port terminals across the U.S. The new deal involves largest ports on the East Coast. But what's at stake? And what leverage is the U.S. handing to the foreign buyer? NTD's Juliette Song has the details. A foothold in the third largest port in America. A French company linked to Chinese communist regime is now buying two terminals in a major port called the Port of New York and New Jersey. 
It serves a population of over 46 million. Christopher O'Day is an expert on ports and infrastructure finance. He warns handing control of a critical port to a buyer with deep ties to Chinese state-owned companies could pose a long-term threat to America. Throughout history, countries really haven't turned over the operation of their ports to adversarial countries. That's what connects things to the global supply chain. So if you're, if you're controlling that port, that's a strategically very important position. The French buyer is called CMACGM. It has been investing in terminals across the U.S. It has stakes in terminals in Los Angeles, Alaska, Houston, and Miami. But the company is also heavily financed by Chinese state-owned companies. They have a joint venture uh, in, their, in their terminal business, uh, which is a, a separate unit from its shipping company. And, and that's 49% uh, owned by a company called China Merchants, which is another Chinese state-owned entity. And the financial ties don't end there. Then in 2015, China Exim Bank uh, extended approximately a $1 billion, uh, in, in U.S. dollar terms of, of financing credits and, and um, financial support to CMACGM. The Chinese state has full control over this bank. So what leverage does a company get once they take certain control of a port or certain terminals inside a port? He explained that operating a port is no simple matter. For it to run smoothly, it needs to be plugged into the local infrastructure system. You are working with the local officials all the time about major uh, economic and financial decisions about where to put electricity lines, where to put highways, where, where to put train lines. You now have a seat at the table where political and economic decisions are, are made. Influence aside, O'Day said ports can provide nearly perfect cover for cyber espionage. So you've got a lot of information coming through a port on, on uh, digital communication networks. And there are ample ways that you can assign uh, personnel, that you can plug in various, various elect, you know, electronic and, and you know, kind of cyber listening posts. He noted even though that's not a direct threat to national security. But it gives you a much better picture over who, who's buying what, where things are going, uh, and, and just, can, again, control, control of supplies, which uh, could be uh, useful, uh, very useful, if you wanted to disrupt those supplies. And if the U.S. were to get into a conflict with China over Taiwan or disputes over the South China Sea, the situation could be leveraged. What if the Chinese stop sending their vessels to those terminals that they control? They don't want to let them load goods in China or Asia at ports that China controls and, and bring them to Los Angeles or New York or Long Beach. You know, you, you, could, see, uh, you, you could see a disruption in essential supplies. Here's an example. In the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, China threatened to cut off medical supplies to America following Washington's criticism of Beijing. The Chinese said, you know, you, you, need, you need a lot of pharmaceuticals and things from us. That's the ultimate economic and political lever that, that they have by acquiring all of these ports. NTD reached out to CMA-CGM for comment but did not immediately receive a reply. Now, Chinese companies hold stakes in almost 100 ports around the world, and Chinese military ships have made port calls in over 30 of them. And it seems Beijing's plan doesn't stop at ports. China has also been increasing its control over global shipping lanes. The world shipping, container shipping lines are organized in, into three uh, large alliances. And one of them is controlled by China's state-owned company, Costco. He said there's a chance Beijing could weaponize its control of the trade logistics network. If you control the, the product manufacturing and the distribution over the ocean routes, and you also control the terminals where the goods are uh, delivered to, to the end market, that gives you a, a significant level of control over supply lines. O'Day urges the U.S. to restore its ability to move its own goods. There needs to be a reliable source of global ocean transportation that is not subject to leverage or, or pressure through um, embargo threats or market access threats that the Chinese could do to uh, most of the other uh, uh, countries. 
so that, that, that is a, a major strategic gap. He added it's a multi-decade approach, but at the moment, he doesn't see an appetite for the strategy. Juliet Song, NTD News. NTD reached out to a U.S. government agency for comment about the deal. The agency is called the CFIUS. It's part of the Treasury Department and reviews foreign investment deals in the U.S. A spokesperson from the Treasury Department told NTD that the agency does not publicly comment on transactions that it may or may not be evaluating. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Coming up, Germany and Britain intercepted three Russian military planes over the Baltic Sea, and Moscow has sent two other bombers further north. And food inflation is surging across Europe. It's at nearly 50% in Hungary, and the increased prices are hard to cope with. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Germany and the UK intercepted three Russian military aircraft over the skies of northern Europe. The German Air Force reported the news on Twitter. These are photos of the planes from yesterday. The jets were flying over the Baltic Sea without transponder signals at the time. Russian military aircraft often fly from mainland Russia to the Baltic coast and back. That means such encounters are fairly common in the region. Germany handed over NATO's Baltic air policing mission to Britain earlier this month. NATO allies are protecting the airspace there because Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia don't have their own fighter jets. Also in northern Europe, two Russian strategic missile bombers flew over the Barents and Norwegian seas. These are neutral waters. The Russian Defense Ministry made the announcement today. Moscow said crews from the Air Force and Northern Fleet Air Defense units escorted the two fighter jets on the 14-hour flight. Chinese Communist leader Xi Jinping and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky spoke on the phone today. It was their first time speaking since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year. In a phone call, Xi and Zelensky exchanged views on the Ukraine war, with Xi reaffirming China's support for peace talks. That's according to the Chinese regime. Xi said China will send a special envoy to Ukraine and other countries to help conduct in-depth communications with all parties. Zelensky described the call as long and meaningful and said that a Ukrainian ambassador to communist China would help to improve bilateral ties between the two nations. Britain plans to end what would have been the biggest ever deal in video games. It will block Microsoft's acquisition of video game maker Activision Blizzard over monopoly concerns. The country says the $69 billion deal would hinder competition in cloud gaming. Microsoft said it remains fully committed to the acquisition and would appeal the decision. And Activision said it would work aggressively with Microsoft to push the deal forward. Activision's shares were down more than 10% in pre-market trade. Software tried, Microsoft tried to overcome antitrust regulations by signing licensing deals with owners of other game streaming platforms. But it wasn't enough. Several other European countries plan to ramp up wind power in the North Sea. They said their aim is to turn the region into an engine of renewable energy. And today's France correspondent David Vivez talks to an energy expert who says wind power has some considerable downsides. Wind turbines as far as the eye can see. The North Sea will likely look very differently by the end of 2030s. Seven European Union countries, alongside Britain and Norway, pledged on Monday to boost the development of wind farms in the North Sea at a summit in Belgium. They want to meet climate targets and reduce their strategic energy dependence on Russia. Fabien Bouclet, a researcher who wrote several books on wind energy, says European countries are in great need to find new sources of energy. Uh, Europe is highly dependent on energy imports at 55%. That's to say that Europe has to import energy. All sources of energy combined up to 55% of its consumption needs. And so, with this war in Ukraine and the problems linked to gas supply over the last few months and years, the European Union is absolutely looking for a source of energy that could ensure this sovereignty. The UK government this week said a new power line that would connect offshore wind farms between the UK and the Netherlands could deliver enough electricity to power 1.8 million homes. 
but betting on wind turbines for electricity production poses its own challenges. The cost of wind energy production is high. Countries also need to find non-intermittent energy sources to compensate during wind droughts. Bougle says wind power is one of the least efficient forms of energy. I'll give you an example. Let's take the Bougier power station, which is a nuclear power station installed on 3,000 square meters. Well, to produce the same amount of electricity as this budget power station, which is next to Lyon in France, you need 1,000 wind turbines at sea on an area of 300 square miles. The coefficient of land use is of about 1 to 1,000. He says the push to build new wind farms is largely driven by powerful German lobbies. Germany has infiltrated the European Commission. They only have eyes for wind energy, which is in fact a random intermittent and uncontrollable energy. So in my view, it's very simple. Once again, we are going down the wrong path, driven by Germany, which wants to develop its wind energy business, since Germany is one of the major manufacturers of wind turbines, with market leader Siemens Gamesa. A recent report published by a U.S. federal agency shows adverse effects by offshore turbines on the ocean's biodiversity. Bouglis says people underestimate the wind turbines' impact on the environment. In the U.S. there is this debate on building wind turbines. It's better to use a nuclear reactor on the coast of New York than to install thousands of wind turbines that are inefficient, intermittent and that kill whales, as was pointed out in a recent White House report. So if you like, we are trying to find a solution. Wind power generation has been called green, when in fact it is extremely polluting. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. The UK may soon ban fake reviews and subscription traps. This is to help consumers and increase competition between big tech firms. The Digital Markets Competition and Consumers Bill would require websites to take reasonable steps to check if reviews are genuine. The new rules would also ensure consumers can end subscriptions in a straightforward, cost-effective, and timely manner, and require businesses to send a reminder when a free trial or introductory offer is coming to an end. Tech firms with a market dominance could, be, could face heavy fines if they don't abide by the rules, and the Digital Markets Unit would intervene to allow startups or smaller firms to compete. Food inflation has risen dramatically across Europe in recent months. Hungary is the hardest hit. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports on the Central Europe's nation's sky-high inflation. Magdolna Gosen stands at a produce stall in Budapest. She carefully selects the right spicy green peppers. That's because they're going to cost her. I don't buy fruit anymore. We got potatoes from the municipality, so I don't have to buy that. But onions became expensive, 700 forint. I've seen it in the news. Everything is expensive. I think food in Hungary is the most expensive in Europe. Increased prices are hitting Hungarian consumers hard. They're also forcing businesses to rethink what they offer for sale. On average, I sell everything for prices 20 to 30 percent higher. Energy is more expensive. Cultivation of vegetables is more expensive. So no surprise if prices are higher. Transportation is more expensive. Fuel is more expensive. These all push prices higher and higher. Economist Peter Virovox says real wages are falling and people are spending less as they deplete household savings. The newest available data from February shows that the annual decrease in retail sales is at 10 percent. We've reached a point where there is such an increase in prices and such a depletion of household reserves that people have actually started to tighten their belt and have started to consume much less. Sylvia Bukta is a manager at a butcher stall in Budapest's Grand Market Hall. She sees that customers are purchasing less of certain higher-priced meats and fewer products in general. Habits have definitely changed, so people are really thinking about what they buy. We're almost to the point where sausage and ham are considered luxury food items. At Café Siga, managers took hamburgers and french fries off the menu late last year. Price of raw materials has sharply increased. There were some items that went up around 100 percent. Vegetables, especially in the winter period, and certain meats and meat products rose unbelievably. 
Esther Rabus is the owner of Babushka Bakery. She's raised prices somewhat to keep up with costs. We hope that the price of raw materials will fall or at least stop rising, and then we will not be forced to increase our prices further. We also have to increase the wages of our staff, but that's very difficult if the prices of raw materials skyrocket in the meantime. Hungary's food inflation rate was at 47 percent in February, way above the EU average of 20 percent. And the country's overall average inflation rate was also the highest in the EU, at over 25 percent. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, the largest display of Shakespeare works ever shown in Britain. It features six rare copies of Shakespeare's collected plays. And a father and son duo make handmade classical guitars in Madrid. They use the same tools and methods from over a century ago. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Welcome back. A rocket launched by Sweden crashed in Norway. It missed its landing site by 25 miles. The Swedish Space Corp says the rocket crashed in the mountains about six miles from the nearest human settlement. It carried out three experiments at an altitude of 150 miles before its ascent. The tests were commissioned by the European Space Agency. They looked at the behavior of materials in microgravity environments. The spacecraft's payload was successfully retrieved and returned to the space center in Sweden. An investigation is underway to determine the cause of the crash and will look at why the rocket flew so far from its landing site. Six rare first edition collections of William Shakespeare's plays are going on show in London next week to mark the 400th anniversary of his first folio. Auction House Christie's says it's the largest ever display of Shakespeare's works in Britain. If we didn't have the publication of the first folio, it is very likely that half of Shakespeare's entire output, so 18 plays, would not exist. And these include plays such as Macbeth, Julius Caesar, All's Well That Ends Well. It's just amazing to think that there would be a world in which these plays don't exist in all their famous lines. Five of the six copies come from private collections, and the sixth is from the Senate House Library at the University of London. The editions were compiled by Shakespeare's friends and published seven years after his death. They contain 36 of the 37 plays he wrote, arranged for the first time as comedies, tragedies, and histories. In 2020, a first folio sold for a record amount at auction, just shy of $10 million. The exhibition runs in Christie's London showroom throughout May. Madrid's guitar shops make some of the most renowned instruments in the country. Instead of faster and more modern production methods, small family businesses use old techniques to perfect their instruments. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Mariano Conde's studio has been in business since 1915. Here, a father and son duo make handmade classical guitars. Our customers are professionals. We have requests, so we adapt the guitar to the touch of the person. To do this, we choose materials. We measure keystrokes, string lengths. One string is better for one person and another for another. In other words, it's a very personalized assignment. Mariano Conde Jr. says he's been officially working with his father for 14 years, but he's always been around. Here you start with the broom. You begin with sweeping the workshop. Little by little, you are allowed to make some pieces, some interiors, bars, do some simple gluing, and little by little you see how you can make the instrument on your own. Likewise, for me all my life, as my father always says, you never stop learning. Conde Jr. says they use the same tools and gluing methods employed in 1915. The wood they use has been dried for 30 to 50 years to achieve the desired sound. The duo says their business is all about quality, not quantity. They make about 35 guitars a year, mostly for professional concert guitarists. 
Mariano's guitars facilitate your work. Let's say that when you pick up the guitar, it gives you the comfort to express what you want to play. That doesn't usually happen with just any guitar. So that's where you can see the hidden work that goes into making a guitar. The workshop sends the guitars to artisan varnishers run by another father and son duo. Mariano Paredes Sr. started working with his father more than 30 years ago. To fill the pores in the wood, he uses a technique from 1800, and now he's passing on the skills to his son. You have to know how to apply the varnish. You also have to know how to give it a nice color. Here in this workshop, we make many types of handmade varnishes, but the acoustics is the most important thing. That is to say, we don't smear the guitar with varnish, and we don't give it too much thickness. We have our own mixtures. But Conde's guitars aren't cheap. The instruments range from $4,000 to $45,000. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, we'll take you to a special path in Rio's Botanical Garden leads to the tallest trees in Brazil. That's here on NTD News Today. A trail of giant trees. With this, a botanical garden in Brazil is drawing attention to preserve its unique forest. Let's take a closer look. Two rows of towering imperial palms make up this impressive entrance, but botanists are searching for plants that are even taller in an effort to boost environmental awareness. We use LiDAR technology attached to a drone. The drone flies up to 100 meters or well above the treetops and measures using light beams. It was Nadris's idea to establish a trail with the 11 tallest trees as a new attraction. His group studied over 4,000 trees in the Rio Botanical Garden using GPS to build 3D information. Tourists can follow the trail using a paper map, a mobile phone app, or through a guided tour with a botanist. We are close to number one to my left, two also to my left, three is the Jequitiba up there, and now we'll get here to number 11, which is the tallest tree in the Botanical Garden. This African mahogany stands as the tallest, at over 160 feet. It's on the red list of threatened species by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. One of the imperial palms ranks second highest. Their ancestor was planted over two centuries ago by a Portuguese regent. In the third place is a tree from the Amazon, the Sumooma. The species has been known to grow up to 240 feet in its native habitat. Brazil recently discovered its largest tree in the Amazon, the red angeline. Once you reach the foot of the tree, it is hard to see because the canopy of the forest obstructs the top of the tree, so you cannot see. The branches of the angeline or the sumauma begin to branch out above the normal canopy of the forest. There is no angeline in the botanical garden, but one area is dedicated to the Amazon rainforest. There stands an alley of blossoming cannonball trees. As well as andoroba, the plant is valued in the Amazon for its medicinal properties. It may sound unpleasant, but cold plunge therapy has a range of surprising health benefits. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Perhaps you're familiar with the polar bear plunge. This is where individuals willingly jump, dive or run into icy cold water. Such events are typically done as fundraisers and aren't a routine activity. However, some people participate in cold plunge therapy for healing purposes. This is a technique that can be helpful for a wide variety of conditions when done correctly and with guidance. Common temperatures used in cold plunge therapy can range from high 30s to 59 degrees Fahrenheit. Cold plunge therapy it can benefit athletes. It helps to reduce muscle soreness, improve athletic performance and boost energy. Research shows that cold water immersion is significantly better for recovery than the use of ice massage. According to researcher Rhonda Patrick, making the plunge produces a neurotransmitter that helps to control energy, focus and attention. 
Her research has also shown that it may have the ability to improve insulin sensitivity, enhance memory, prevent muscle atrophy, boost the growth of new brain cells and improve longevity. Cold plunge therapy can positively impact mood and depression. One study has shown that those who immerse themselves in cold water, that's at 56 degrees Fahrenheit for 20 minutes, demonstrated a significant improvement in mood that was compared with those who didn't take the plunge. Cold water therapy is good for your immune system. The cold water causes the white blood cells to circulate more rapidly through your body. These infection-fighting cells also help to produce other infection fighters such as antibodies and T cells. Exposure to cold water can increase your resting metabolic rate, which may result in weight loss. Other potential benefits of taking the cold water plunge include improved sleep, increased blood flow and reduced inflammation. Your resilience and mental toughness may improve as well. However, cold plunge therapy isn't for everyone. The body experiences significant stress when entering cold water. This is why it's strongly recommended that you consult your healthcare provider before engaging in this practice. It's also recommended that you proceed slowly, entering the water gradually and allowing your body to adjust to the shock. If you don't have a tub for doing cold water immersion, taking a cold shower can also have similar effects. You can start with warmer water, slowly adjust it to cold water and finish with two minutes of cold water and then work your way up to more time. Don't plan on visiting Yosemite National Park this weekend. Officials are closing most of it Friday night. That's because flooding is expected in the area. Right now, the closure is expected to last until next Wednesday, but the National Park Service says it might last longer. Severe weather hit Yosemite last month, too. The park had to close for three weeks when 15 feet of snow fell. Much of that snow is still there and could stay until July. Thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to share any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. My name is Chris Beers, and you're watching NTD News, New York City.